You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. kind of the difference, you know, you think about the, you know, fan follower of Jesus, it kind of comes back to the whole concept, you know, of the, of the crowd versus the core. And we, you know, talked about that uh, in times past, you know, the core are those that are the committed Christians. I mean, those, the core are those who just, they're there for pretty much everything. They're the ones that, you know, if you've ever heard that analogy, you know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, th- those are usually the people that make up your core. I mean, they're, they're, they're there, they're giving, they're contributing uh, their time, their gifts, their talents. I mean, they're just really in there making a difference in the life of the church. Um, they're usually people who are very committed to ministry, uh, to witnessing. The crowd are those who really are kind of just content on coming on a Sunday morning. Um, they'll show up, they'll kind of come to service, they'll worship, they'll listen to the sermon, and then they'll kind of walk out of here, and we really don't see or hear from them um, until the following Sunday. And, and for the core people, you know, it's, it, they're here, they're very, very involved. They know what's going on. The crowd, again, they're kind of just content to go from Sunday to Sunday. The, the crowd people are those who have kind of almost compartmentalized their faith. You know, church, that's kind of my Sunday morning thing. God, that's kind of my Sunday morning thing. My relationship with Jesus, that's kind of my Sunday morning thing. And then the rest of the week, they're just kind of, you know, almost kind of living a whole separate life. And this Sunday morning thing really doesn't translate into anything meaningful throughout the work. That to me, that's the crowd core. And I believe that God is really at work preparing the core. And, and I, would, I would call them, the, that's your body of Christ. That's the, that's the uh, rock solid believers. And again, God's working to prepare the, the crowd to really be able to minister um, to the core. And again, one of the distinguishing differences between the crowd and the core is usually crowds, they're just kind of fans of Jesus. The core tends to really be dedicated followers of Jesus. Um, God loves bro- both the crowd and the core, don't get me wrong. God loves both the crowd and the core, but he is definitely calling us, if we're in the crowd, he's definitely calling us out into the core, and that, um, and one of the ways that we kind of do that is we kind of go from being just a fan of Jesus to a follower of Jesus. We're really in the word, and we're really, we're, we're working to be obedient to what God is calling us to do. And again, one of the ways that we can really go from being, you know, a fan of Jesus to a follower of Jesus is really learning how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we move uh, more to loving God with that kind of intensity, that kind of focus, there's, there's a devotion uh, to that. Uh, our obedience to his commandments, that will follow as well. It's a process, it's a journey, uh, and it really takes a lifetime to really begin 
to uh, know, to understand the person of God, because as I always say, God's ways, uh, who he is, his character, his attributes, they're infinite. And, and you can live a hundred lifetimes and you'll never even come close to exhausting the inexhaustible um, God. So again, there's always uh, newer, deeper revelations uh, into the person of God, who God is. Um, obviously, God has given us the Holy Spirit. And we talk about this. One of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to lead you into all truth. Now, a lot of times people, you know, when you have these kinds of discussions with non-believers and you kind of begin to talk about the truth of God or the truth of Christianity, I mean, one of their, one of their you know, signature lines is, is, well, who can know truth? You know, and so they kind of want to just try to, you know, get you all confused and kind of get you off topic and they'll just say, no one can know truth. Well, God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we can know the truth uh, when we know God. And the Holy Spirit is there to lead you and to guide you into all truth. Um, Jesus talks about uh, our role, our identity, you know, as being that follower of Christ. And, and one of the ways that he kind of depicts that follower of Christ is he kind of talks about um, the bride of Christ. He talks about the body of Christ. And then he kind of talks about his role, his identity, as what he terms the bridegroom God. And one of the ways that we can really more fully understand and come to know um, what kind of a relationship God is pursuing. God is God is in pursuit of you for a relationship. Now, oftentimes, when we think about relationships, those can really kind of, you know, be a variety of, of things. You know, God is pursuing a relationship with us, and Jesus kind of describes the kind of relationship that God is pursuing with us, the closest illustration, the best example we have of the type of relationship that God is pursuing with us is marriage. And, and so that's why the scriptures kind of, Jesus talks about us, the, the, the body of Christ being the bride of Christ, and Jesus himself kind of being the bridegroom. Isaiah 62.5 is, is a place where, again, God kind of gives us some insight into the kind of relationship he's interested in having with us. And there it says, as a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder God marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. That's the kind of relationship that God is pursuing. It's a kind of relationship you and I were designed to experience. It's the kind of relationship that God is pursuing with us. And God created you and I. We got to understand this. God created mankind. God created men and women out of no need for himself. 
There's no void in God. There was no vacancy in God. There wasn't kind of an empty spot in God's heart, and he needed something to fill that hole, so he created mankind. No, there was, there was no need that God had outside of himself that caused him to create you and me. Again, God, you know, when we talked about that, you know, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, again, they existed in perfect unity. They existed in complete, total, perfect fellowship. So God created mankind out of no need for himself. God wasn't lonely, uh, wasn't bored, looking for something to do. So then he just decided, well, I'll just create mankind so that I'll have someone to kind of talk to, someone to kind of interact with, someone to kind of just watch over and help pass time. Mankind does not fill. We don't fill any void. We don't fill any emptiness in God. God is completely full. He lacks nothing. He is the absolute fullness of love. He is perfect in grace. He continually radiates the purest of joy. He is completely faithful. And God created you and I, God created mankind for the sole purpose. You ready for this? You want to know why you were created? You want to know why you're here? Because God wants to fully bestow all of that on us. That's why you exist. God wants to take all that he is, and he just wants to lavish that on you and me. Let that sink in. Some of you, maybe you kind of just feel like you don't know what you're here for. You, you, maybe you feel like you lack purpose. There's no greater purpose than that. To be able to receive as fully, as completely as you can all that God is and all that God offers. Psalm 103, we were going to talk a little bit about that last week. We were kind of talking about, again, that, that concept of beholding and becoming. What you behold is what you become. And I said, as you kind of begin to behold the word of God, as you begin to kind of meditate on that, as you kind of begin to focus on that, as you kind of just begin to allow God to begin to shape and to transform your heart so that it's more in accordance with his word, uh, again, as you just behold that, you will become that. One of the best psalms to do that with is Psalm 103. And there it says in there, David kind of reveals God's intent, his desire towards you and I. Uh, and I, I would encourage you, go back and read that whole psalm. It's an amazing psalm. But I want to just pull out a few verses here. It says, he redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. There again, there's that bestowing, there is that lavishing upon you good things. It's not his wrath, it's not his anger, it's not his judgment, even though we're, in, we're, we're fully deserving of that. 
God chooses again to bestow and to lavish upon you his love and tender mercies. He fills your life with good things. Behold that. Meditate. Think on that. Why does God do this? Why does God allow that to happen? No, 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 no. He fills your life with good things. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. Meditate on that. Think on that. Allow that truth to kind of just begin to permeate your heart and your spirit. Some of you are, are you're, you're meditating on lies that are not based on the word. Oh, God, God is upset with me. Oh, I did this, so God is angry. Oh, God is punishing me. Oh, God gave me cancer. God gave me sickness. God gave me disease. That is a lie. And a lot of the reasons why some of you are stuck where you're stuck is because you're beholding all of the wrong things. And you're becoming bitter and confused. That's why this is so important. What you behold, you'll become. So Psalm 103, as in other places, it's beginning to reveal to you the true nature, the true heart, the true desire, the true intent of God towards you and you got to embrace that and you got to let that begin to kind of wash over your heart and your spirit God doesn't have love God doesn't have mercy he doesn't have tender compassion he is the fullness of all of that God doesn't have love he is love big difference One of the reasons that God created you, one of the reasons you are here today, this very moment, is God longs to bestow all of that. He longs to lavish all of that on you. That just ought to make your heart happy. That ought to make your feet dance. God created you and he created me for the purpose of having someone that he could just unleash all of that on. You and I were created so we could experience and be crowned and lavished by his love, his compassion, and his grace. So again, one of the best analogies One of the best illustrations we've got of what God really desires and what he's pursuing with us, again, is the covenant of marriage between a bridegroom and a bride. That's the picture that the Bible uses. It's the kind of relationship that God created you and I to experience with him. Now, those of us that are married, we, we, we understand elements of that, obviously, but it's not 
perfect, it's not a perfect analogy, it's not a perfect experience, but it's the closest one we've got um, on the earth to really kind of understand. Now, interestingly, there is a whole book in the Old Testament that kind of captures and really illustrates this picture of both marital love and the love that God desires to share, to lavish upon us his bride, his church, and it's called the Song of Solomon. Now, the Song of Solomon is a very, very unique book in the Old Testament in that it kind of categorizes itself as one of the five poetical books along with Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Now, a lot of people don't read the Song of Solomon, um, or if they do, they kind of walk away from that book with a very kind of confused, incomplete sense of what is this all about? The Song of Solomon, it can be a very difficult book to understand and interpret because like Revelation, it's got a lot of symbols and metaphors and the tricky thing about it in the Song of Solomon is a lot of those metaphors and a lot of those um, symbols contain sexual overtones and so we become a little embarrassed or we just kind of become kind of confused with that. Again, it is also unique in that the Song of Solomon kind of contains both a natural and what you would call an allegorical spiritual interpretation. Now the natural interpretation um, that is given, it is depicting a literal human love story um, between King Solomon who is the author of the Song of Solomon, and his bride. And as you, if you've ever read that, she's kind of known as the Shulamite woman. So, so that is kind of the natural interpretation. And it really kind of is uh, understood as a love story, uh, giving spiritual principles on kind of, again, the beauty of married love. In addition to the natural uh, interpretation, many biblical scholars kind of also see what they call an allegorical interpretation in the Song of Solomon, and that, it, you know, there are kind of several different interpretations given. One of the interpretations is, is that the Song of Solomon is depicting the relationship between God, who is seen as the bridegroom, and the nation of Israel as the bride. Other biblical scholars will kind of take that same spiritual allegory and they'll say, no, 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 uh, really kind of it is the relationship between Jesus and the body of Christ. Now, when it comes to an allegorical interpretation, I tend to kind of lean toward interpreting it as the relationship that God desires through the Son, Jesus, and his bride, the church, the body of Christ. Now, if you, if you interpret that as, as God and the nation of Israel, that's fine. I'm just giving you my personal um, interpretation on that. Now, if you ever get into the Song of Solomon, you'll find that there are three main characters in the Song of Solomon. And then we'll just get into some really good stuff here with, King, with Song of Solomon. First is King Solomon. King Solomon is understood in the allegorical interpretation, again, to be a picture of Jesus and is seen as kind of the, uh, the, uh, a type of the 
uh, triumphant, victorious, resurrected Jesus Christ, who is kind of the Lord of lords and the King of kings. The second main character is the Shulamite woman, and again, she represents the church, the body of Christ. The third main character is the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, in an allegorical interpretation, they represent a part of the church that is kind of characterized uh, by spiritual dullness, that there's kind of just this passivity. They're kind of like a fan of Jesus, okay? They represent um, kind of a, a desire uh, to seek and to pursue intimacy, and yet they kind of are perplexed, they're kind of confused as to really how to go about establishing that kind of a, of a relationship. So you find them in the Song of Solomon, and they're asking a lot of questions because they're really trying to understand the nature of this relationship. They're trying to understand what makes um, what makes the Shulamite woman, what makes her so passionate? What is it about her, that body of Christ, that makes the bridegroom so zealous, so desirous for her? And again, that's a question oftentimes the body of Christ is asking. Now, one of the most intriguing and interesting verses found in the Song of Solomon is in chapter 1, verse 5. And this is what we're going to kind of talk about in detail tonight. And it's where the Shulamite woman says there, I am dark but lovely. Now in the natural interpretation of this, the Shulamite woman seems to be referring to the color of her skin. Because in verse 6 she goes on to say, I am dark because the sun has tanned me. So again, the natural interpretation of that, if, if you're going to literally interpret that, what she's saying is, my skin is dark. I've been sun tanning. Uh, my skin is dark due to its exposure to the sun. Now when you take this same verse and you begin to interpret it through the allegorical lens, again, the Shulamite woman represents the church, the bride of Christ. That statement, I am dark but lovely, to me it depicts one of the greatest paradoxes of grace. That darkness in an allegorical sense refers to there is the sinfulness of our hearts and our rebellion toward God. The darkness depicts, again, our rebellion, our rejection of God, kind of turning away from uh, all that he offers, from who he is. And the paradox there, again, is that even in our darkness, and get this, even in our failures, in our mistakes, in our sinfulness, in our rejection of God, we are dark but lovely in his eyes. That, that to me is the spiritual, the allegorical interpretation of what the Song of Solomon is trying to say to us. 
that even in our rebellion, our rejection of God, in our darkness, our sinfulness, God still sees us as lovely. And he still, in spite of everything, is pursuing us. In spite of everything, he still longs to lavish, to crown you with love, with his grace, with his tender mercies, even in our weakness. God sees us through his eyes of love. This is one of the greatest paradoxes of grace. And to really appreciate the tension, the paradox of God's grace in this, we got to understand as much as we are able to, the two extremes, because they are extreme in that statement, I am dark, but lovely. And again, part of that paradox is this. There is a greater, deeper capacity for sin and darkness in our hearts and in our spirits than we can ever hope to understand or comprehend. I mean, you think you're bad or you have bad days or you make bad decisions. It's worse than you ever imagined. I mean, you, you think you're, you know, evil. I, I mean, it's worse than you could ever imagine. But at the same time, there is a profound deepness. There is an unquenchable passion of God's love for us that he longs to lavish that he loves to crown us with than we will ever know or experience or be able to comprehend even in our darkness, our sinfulness, and our weaknesses. None of us will ever fully comprehend or experience the magnitude of God's love for us. They are two extremes and both of those extremes are impossible to fully comprehend or understand. You are more evil, you are more sinful than you and I could ever imagine, comprehend, or understand, but you have never been more lovely in his eyes than you can ever imagine, comprehend, or understand. That's the paradox. And I can't think of any extremes greater than that. Paul recognizes the weakness of our flesh in Romans 7, 18. He said, for I know that in me. And even though Paul knows that, again, he falls woefully short of fully comprehending or knowing exactly what it is he's acknowledging there. And he says, for I know that in me, that is my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will or to want is present in me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. 
Again, it's one of the greatest paradoxes to grace. How can you and I, how can we be so dark, so lost, so wicked, so evil, so rebellious in God's eyes, and yet lovely, beautiful, desirous at the same time. Again, I'm trying to get you to feel the tension here. Because this is one of the most difficult tensions for you and I as believers to bring together. Typically, we tend to understand one side of that paradox better than the other. We, we tend to gravitate toward one side of that paradox more than the other. We have greater difficulty kind of grasping and bringing the two of those together. We are far weaker, darker, and more sinful than we realize, and far lovelier in his eyes than we know. In spite of our sinfulness, our weaknesses, our darkness, God takes great delight in us. Feel that tension. And again, as we continue, as we kind of mature spiritually, it's important that we understand more and more of our weakness and struggle with sin in our lives. Again, Paul spoke those words there in Romans. He spoke that as a, as a born-again, spirit-filled believer. Spiritual maturity, it's not a graduation from weakness. We kinda, we've talked about embracing weakness. It's, it's as we embrace our weakness that the power, the strength of Christ is greater. So it, it's not a matter of spiritual maturity. It is kind of getting away from overcoming, conquering my weaknesses. Rather, it is an increase in our confidence in God. That's spiritual maturity. I know who he is and I am confident in who he is and I am confident in how he sees, how he uh, feels toward me. That's spiritual maturity. The most spiritually mature Christians are those who know that God has everything and we have nothing. We bring nothing to the table. We, we don't even initiate it. If God did not initiate the relationship, there would be nothing. We have nothing to offer God. We have nothing that God needs. God can do all things apart from him. We can do nothing. That's what the scripture says. Spiritual maturity is coming to that place where we recognize that human effort alone, spiritual growth is impossible. But with him, 
in connection with him, us abiding in him and he abiding in us, all things suddenly now become possible. And again, the mature Christians are those who are continually abiding in the vine and drinking from the wellspring of life. Jesus was the most spiritually mature man who ever walked the face of the earth, and he could do nothing apart from the Father. What makes you and I think we're going to be any different? I mean, Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. And yet he could do nothing apart from the Father. The essence of maturing love, intimacy with God, and spiritual growth develops and deepens from a realization of our utter weakness, coupled with a drawing upon him as our only source of strength and hope. To know that I am dark, sinful, rebellious, yet lovely, is to understand and recognize and embrace my weakness, my hopelessness without him. My natural limitations coupled together with the revelation of my loveliness to him. By knowing again, realizing, embracing, coming to terms with our darkness, we open ourselves up to receiving his strength. The power and strength to love and obey God, it's not in us. Never has been, it never will be. It's why we need the Holy Spirit. It is in him, and the more and more we lean upon him, his strength, his power, not our own, the more we will overcome our weaknesses and kind of, again, go on to victory. Again, our natural inclination, this is, again, part of our independence Part of our wanting to kind of do it on our own. Again, that is our natural inclination. That is kind of that sinful spirit. That, that's human flesh. Again, is that inclination to do it on our own. Yet God is committed to not only revealing the weakness of our flesh, he wants to develop a leaning heart upon him that recognizes he is our strength, he is our power, he is our victor. God desires that we would not find confidence in our commitment to him, but rather his commitment to us. That's a big one. God wants us to come to a place in our relationship where it isn't about our commitment to him that matters. What God wants you to see and to understand is his commitment to us. That's what's going to turn this around. By knowing our beauty, by understanding our loveliness to him, we are empowered to begin to have confidence before God in how he sees us, how he views us, how he experiences us, even when our weakness, our struggles with sin, our spiritual immaturities are revealed. 
And one of the ways we find where we are in all of this is what I'm going to ask you to think about tonight. Where are you in this? Ask yourselves, how will we respond to God? How do you respond to God? When your weakness, your struggles with sin, and your darkness surfaces. How do you respond to God? In those times when your weakness, your sinfulness, and your darkness comes to the surface. What do you do? How do you react? How do you respond towards God in those moments? That'll tell you where you're at. Think back to the time you struggled with your biggest weakness. Maybe it's kind of that besetting sin. It just happens over and over and over. Thousands of promises. I'll never do it again. And you've done it over and over and over again. How did you perceive or understand God's heart towards you in those moments of weakness, of sin. Think back to that time you've struggled the most. Or maybe just again, that area of sin, that no matter what you've tried to do, it just constantly happens over and over and over again. How do you perceive, how do you understand, how do you experience God in those moments? That'll tell you where you are. Now here's the truth that I want you to factor into this when you find yourself in those moments. God's heart, his desire towards you was not any different in that moment than it was the moments before leading up to that. God's heart, his desire, was not any different. It doesn't change in that moment any more than it does to the moments or days leading up to that. God does not renegotiate. He doesn't rethink. He doesn't recalculate his love, his grace, his tender mercies based upon your weakness or your struggles with sin. Okay, God is not surprised at your weaknesses. God is not surprised at the areas that you're struggling with sin. God sees Everything, but God does not have the same emotional drama about it that we do. He sees it all, but he's not affected by it the way you and I are. This is because from God's perspective, 
Once you are born again, once you become a son, a daughter of the Most High, we stand totally, completely, and fully accepted in His beloved Son. The moment you're born again, you are fully and totally accepted by God. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.6, he says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us, what? Accepted in the beloved. Who's the beloved? Jesus. Do you realize this position, this strategy, this plan was determined while we were yet sinners and enemies of God? And it hasn't changed, and it never will. Romans 5, 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. While you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy, a combatant of God, totally rejecting him, rejecting his ways. While we were yet sinners, Christ gave his life for you and me. Verse 10 continues, if for a while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Both of these verses indicate what God did for us on our behalf while we were yet sinners and enemies. So if God does all of this, if this is the kind of love that God demonstrates and lavishes upon us while we are yet sinners and enemies, can you imagine what God wants to bestow and lavish upon you as a son and a daughter of the Most High? If he's willing to have his son die for you and I while we are enemies, can you imagine what God wants to do for us as his children? If this is God's heart towards us when we are rebellious and want nothing to do with him, how could his heart be any less toward us now that we are his children? Do you understand why it's so important and critical to get your thinking right on this? It's crucial to our spiritual well-being, to our spiritual maturity to evaluate, to understand how we perceive God's heart and emotions toward us because more often than not, when you and I are in the place of weakness and struggling with sin in our lives, we run from God rather than to him. 
the emotions we begin to kind of entertain in those moments of darkness, of sin, where we're struggling, is we begin to entertain thoughts of shame, guilt, and condemnation, rather than saying, here is a God, I am dark, but I am lovely in his eyes. Even though I have sinned, it doesn't change God's commitment. It doesn't change God's love, his grace, his mercy towards me. And like I said earlier, when we go through all of that, there's just this emotional drama that unfolds within us. And that is not at all how God sees, views, or experiences us in those moments of weakness. Many times our response toward God and toward our weaknesses and our struggling with sin is we want to discipline ourselves. We want to punish ourselves before re-engaging in our relationship with God. And the truth is, The power of our deliverance and the victory over our weaknesses and struggle with sin lie in needing his gaze of love and delight in us, even when we are weak and struggling. When we deeply love the Lord, it becomes a major issue when we sin. I'm not trying to downplay that. How we respond toward God in those moments reveals a lot about where we are in our spiritual journey and in our pursuit of intimacy and in our relationship with God. And just so none of you get any wrong impressions, I'm probably just as far from that as a lot of you are. And I'm working and I'm striving to get to that place of intimacy as well. Like I've said to you throughout this whole thing, a hypocrite is not a person who says one thing and does the opposite. A hypocrite is someone who says one thing but doesn't pursue it. You can be here tonight and you can have the the faintest pursuit of intimacy with God this morning and God will take, even if it's a flicker, God will take that and God will begin to work with that. God will meet you in that place and God will begin to fan the desire no matter how faint or weak that is tonight. How we respond to God in those moments of weakness, of darkness, of rebellion reveals either the firmness or the faultiness of our spiritual foundation. Folks, there are really only two ways of standing before God. Either totally accepted or totally rejected. There's no middle ground. There's no halfway point. We are not partially accepted, partially rejected. Oh God, he kind of just accepts the good parts of me. God accepts the parts of me when I'm, you know, kind of those times when I'm reading the Bible and I'm praying and I'm taking items to the mission. Oh, God is so happy with me. And then there's a side where God's frustrated, he's disappointed, he's angry at some of the things that I'm doing over here. 
So it's kind of a 50-50 deal with God, however you want to break that down. That's, that's, our, that's our approach to God. That's our understanding of God. We're partially accepted. We're partially rejected. That's just not true. To me, one of the incredibly unique messages of the Christian faith To me, one of the things that makes Christianity stand head and shoulders above any other world religion known to mankind is that once you begin that journey, once you become born again, once you say yes to Jesus, once you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you become saved in that moment, We are fully, completely, perfectly accepted and embraced by our loving God. And our faith journey is we're just learning now how to walk that out more fully and more fully. Every other religion known to mankind begins with an uncertainty of our position and our worth, our value to God. And then they'll just produce, they'll give you a list. Here are all of the hoops that you need to jump through. Here's what needs to be done. Here's what needs to be avoided as a way of earning our way and coming into a greater and greater degree of access to God and spiritual status. That's what every other religion offers. Here's what you need to do to be loved and accepted and valued by God. And if you don't, you're not. If you are sincerely desiring and pursuing intimacy with God, whether you're just coming off of a 40-day fast or you're, you know, just had an argument with your spouse, You have the same access to God. We just have to learn to respond to God on the basis of who we are rather than what we do. So many of us, we kind of respond to God based on what we do. When I'm a good boy, God's happy with me. When I'm a bad boy, God's mad at me and God's upset with me. God doesn't want anything to do with me. We've got to get to that place where, again, we respond to God based on who we are rather than what we do. If you're going to relate to God solely on the basis of what you do and on your own strength, when you do good, you know what? You're just going to become proud. And when your weakness or struggles with sin surface, we're just going to run from God and we're just going to come under guilt and condemnation. I'm going to just close with this one word of caution. If you you heard nothing else I said tonight, please hear this. I know what some of you are sitting there thinking. To be confident in our standing and worth with God is only valid in the context of our passionate pursuit 
of him and in our wholeheartedness toward growing in our intimacy with him. To sit here and say God loves us, God delights in us, God rejoices over us with singing, even in our weakness and struggles with sin outside of repentance. From our moments of weakness of sin, it is unbiblical and it's heretical. Do not sit here and say, oh yes, I have moments of weakness, I have moments of sin, but that doesn't matter. It matters. In those moments that we struggle with sin, with weakness, we need to be repenting of that. We need to be confessing our sin. So God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. So don't get this idea that, that that doesn't matter with God anymore. It matters. We've got to deal with that. We've got to be aware of that. We've got to know that, that there's been uh, a process by which we can confess and get that cleansed. The grace of God, okay, does not release us or excuse us from repentance in those times when those uh, weaknesses, shortcoming, mistakes, and failures surface. So when the Shulamite woman declares there in uh, Solomon 1.5, I am dark but lovely, she is testifying to the revelation that even in her times of weakness, of struggles with sin, she is still beautiful and lovely to him and she maintains her focus on him and her pursuit of him as the priority, the one thing, the big thing of her heart. Like her, you and I, we also need to recognize not only our weakness, struggles, and shortcomings, but we also have to see and understand that we are lovely, we are beautiful, we are desirous to God. And in that, we are secure and we are firmly positioned in salvation and righteousness in and through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. This is our confidence. This is our boldness before him. And it is the foundation that you've got to build and you've got to deepen that if you're going to find intimacy, and if you're going to find a fulfilling, life-giving relationship with God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. We just can't thank you enough. We can't praise you enough for who you are, for what you have done for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. That God, in our darkness, you sent forth your light. And the darkness could not overcome it. The darkness could not extinguish him. Father, I just pray that we would come to that place of confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. That, God, we would come to that place of security in who we are. Not based on how we see ourselves, but based upon how you see us. How your word reveals your thought, your heart, your desires 
toward us. God, may that be our foundation. May that be our pathway to intimacy with you. To be fully known. To be fully known in our weakness, our sinfulness, our darkness. And yet in spite of that, to be fully loved. That is the essence of intimacy. That is the foundation of the relationship that you are pursuing with us. So God, I just pray, Lord, that you'll take whatever desire is in us for you. No matter how weak or faint that may be here in our hearts tonight, God, would you just meet us in that place? God, would you just begin to fan even that faintest flame? Just begin to fan that, God. And just cause our hearts to just become ablaze in our love, our desire, our pursuit of you tonight. And I just thank you that you have bestowed your love upon us. You have demonstrated your love toward us through your son, Jesus Christ. And we just thank you for that demonstration, for that revelation. God, take that and just increase our understanding and our experience of your love through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.